You are listening to The Legal Eagle with Marsha Chambers and her special guest today, Dan Wow. Welcome to The Legal Eagle. We are here to explore the legal issues of the day. We look into the civil and criminal justice system, both at the state and federal level. We talk about issues facing the judiciary, the bar, all kinds of things that happen to merge. Um, we invite legislators to be guests on our program, and overall we want to explore the impact of legal decisions on, on how we live. <clears throat> Today we welcome <clears throat> to our WNHH radio program, Dan Clow. Thank you for returning to our, our uh, studio again, Dan. A pleasure to be here, Marsha. Thank you. Now, Dan is a leading First Amendment and open government lawyer in the state, a keen observer of how life at the bar and beyond actually works so he's rare in, in the <laughs> profession welcome dan so speaking of the first amendment let's leap into connecticut's recent go-round very open very broad very publicized um and has to do with a public television channel the only one that we have up in hartford that covers the state house and the legislature that funds it the legislature funds it so it also involves Connecticut budget issues. So tell us the history. Tell us where we are in this epic drama. This is a topic near and dear to my heart, as you know, Marsha. So <laughs> just for a background for all, all of your listeners, yes. <laughs> uh, most cable stations in Connecticut carry something called CTN, mm-hmm. the Cable Television Network. It is Connecticut's version of C-SPAN, uh, uh, mm-hmm. which covers you know the federal government, legislate Congress and executive branch, and so on and so forth. And CTN has been operating in Connecticut since 1999. And its role is to provide neutral, unbiased coverage of the legislature, the executive branch, so that's all the executive branch agencies, and to the extent possible, uh, the courts. Mm -hmm. And it has done that job extremely well for nearly 20 years. Wow. Mm -hmm. um, uh, With almost... You know, n- no debate about whether it was uh, properly serving the mission that it was uh, intended to serve when it was created. Now, when it was created, just going to say, was, was it created by statute? No, it was not created by statute. So it's a public access cable television station that was originally operated, strangely enough, by um, Connecticut Community Colleges, huh. which were using it to provide online courses for students. And a gentleman who was involved with West Hartford Public Access Television named Paul Jaguer mm-hmm. had this idea to create a Connecticut version of C-SPAN. Um, and he right. went to the legislature uh, and got support there, particularly from then uh, Senate President Kevin Sullivan, mm-hmm. who is now the Commissioner of the Department of Revenue Services under the Malloy administration. And they were able to get funding to start this program. It's funded by uh, taking uh, some money that is raised through uh, a gross receipts tax on cable providers. So under state law, providers of of cable television have a tax Mm -hmm. um, that they pay, and that money goes to the legislature, and a small amount is separated apart to fund CTN. Mm -hmm. So what happened is, as I said, for 20 years, pretty much, CTN operated without any issues whatsoever, just doing its thing, pointing its cameras, making sure that the people of Connecticut had direct access to see their legislators, to see their governor, to see how their executive branch agencies were operating. 
And all of a sudden, last April, mm-hmm. the Office of Legislative Management issued a new contract proposal hmm. for a vendor to run CTN. And there was a very dramatic change in it. First, there was a significant budget cut. That was understandable. Mm-hmm. Nobody quibbled with that because <clears throat> they understood the difficult uh, fiscal straits the state found itself in. But the big shift was to, to move editorial control of what was broadcast away from the operator, the, the C-SPAN. C, uh, C-P-A, C-PAN, C-PAN, which operated the network for the legislature, to the legislators themselves. So they wanted to decide what would be seen, what wouldn't be seen. They wanted the right to censor themselves. And uh, Explain that. Well, they technically, the legislature owns the channel, operates the channel. Yeah, but the legislature is large, so was there a small group? There's a small group, something called the Office of Legislative Management, Mm -hmm. and it was going to have a little committee made of unknown bureaucrats uh, working behind the scenes who would decide, this is what CTN can show, this is what CTN can't show, all right? Now, what? prompted that were they were they unhappy with their way in which they were portrayed that is the sixty four thousand dollar question marcia and to this day it remains unanswered except by speculation and innuendo we do not know why all of the sudden they decided um that they wanted to have uh, editorial control over the network there are any number of rumors and i don't Mm-hmm. None of us, we're going to not talk about rumors uh, on the air. They're unsubstantiated. But there was clearly something. But didn't they have some difficulty prior to six months ago, or prior to the recent budget issue? Well, there were... I, I mean, didn't didn't the, the network have some... I, I have a recollection that there was some difficulty. Well, there have been budget issues. Budget, I mean, okay. for a while. There's mm-hmm. no question about budget issues. Mm-hmm. The, the legislature has been trimming everybody's budget. Right. Right. And CTN wasn't going to be insulated from that. Um, but but putting editorial restrictions on CTN was new. Now, did that mean that uh, that the that the operation couldn't cover the governor or the or the state supreme court, for example? Well, that's right, and that's what the, the contract proposal said mm-hmm. that coverage would be strictly limited to the general assembly, right? Unless there was express permission received from these unknown bureaucrats in the legislature to cover the governor or to cover the courts in a hmm. particular case. Hmm. And uh, so when, when the open government community, I'm part of that, you're part of that, mm-hmm. um, learned about this, uh, we reacted very strongly because we thought it was a, a terrible, terrible mistake to have anybody in the legislature, much less bureaucrats in the legislature deciding what uh, CTN could show and what CTN couldn't show. Well, then recently the budget, when the governor looked at the budget again, and oh, so there was a recent cut that sort of said, okay, lights out. That's right. What happened was in, in April, the contract went out, uh, CTN had an operating budget in previous years of about, let's call it two point seven two point eight million dollars mm-hmm. something like that mm-hmm. okay. and uh, the contract proposal called for a four hundred thousand dollar reduction a significant reduction mm-hmm. but again everybody understood why the legislature right was everything doing that. was being cut and, right 
But then all of a sudden in the budget that was passed, what are we now, two, three, two, three weeks ago? Yes, the most recent the go most around. most recent go around. Right. The budget um, was, for CTN was cut to one point, effectively $1.2 million. Oh my God. That was this dramatic, dramatic change to go from, call it 2.4 million down to 1.2. And and who were the leaders of that? I mean, again. Do we, do we know? Well, because it was there weren't that many people in the room the last time. That's right. So <clears throat> that number, the one point two, was in the Republican budget that passed the legislature earlier in the summer, but which the governor vetoed. Uh-huh. Okay. Mm-hmm. So when we had bipartisan negotiations to come up with the budget that ultimately was passed, that number stayed. That apparently stayed. So the number from the mm. Republican budget is what we ultimately ended up with in the budget that signed. And um, CPAN, the Connecticut Public Affairs Network, which is a nonprofit company which has operated CTN under contract with the legislature for nearly 20 years, mm-hmm. uh, came to the conclusion that it simply could not uh, fulfill the mission Um of CTN at $1.2 million. It well, just couldn't do it. Right. So where? So the Republican part of the budget stayed. Yes. And that big cut. Where were the Democrats? Well, the, they, it was, this was a bipartisan budget, ultimately, right? Yeah, but it doesn't sound like they fought very hard. No. And uh, look. I'm just saying. You no, know, you're, you're, well, you're right. But understand. <laughs> I mean. Let's talk about the importance of why CTN is so important. This right. budget was negotiated virtually completely behind closed doors. Totally, right. So you have the leadership from the of the four caucuses, right. you know, in the House and the Senate, Democrats and Republicans, and their staff who get together in closed rooms and they negotiate the budget, and then they go voila and they dump it on their rank and file legislators with maybe 24 hours to read it. Right, that's the problem. Yeah, Yeah. so there's very little time for anybody to truly scrutinize the budget and see what's in there and see what isn't in there and and make any objections. Um, uh, So that's how we ended up where we are now. So now um, State Senator Beth Bayh of uh, West Hartford is asking that the legislature hold meetings and a public hearing on the future of this station. That's right. And uh, what do you think? Does that have a shot? Well, let me let me sit back just a bit mm-hmm. and mention not just uh, Senator By, but Governor Malloy. Okay. And uh, Representative uh, Bob Godfrey. Godfrey, Dan right. Barry. Dan Barry. Tell what's going on. So the legislative leadership denies that there is any effort to impose uh, impose editorial restrictions on CTN. Okay. 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 They s- simply deny it. Uh-huh. And they also say that they're trying to just return CTN to its original mission, which they say was covering only uh, the legislature. Now, that's just wrong. It's just not true. Huh. If you go back to the very original contract mm-hmm. back in 1999, if you look at the uh, a nonprofit uh, uh, IRS statements that CPAN filed, the mission was always to cover all three branches. Mm-hmm. Okay. And it should. And it should. Right. So the governor um, proposed a solution. He said, this is terrible to, to restrict CTN this way. He offered to come up with 400000 from the executive branch. Mm-hmm. He asked the judicial branch if they would come up with an additional 400000 and the legislature. 
that is to to add to the 1.6 and right, bring and it make up the difference make up the difference right. and the legislature just said forget it no we're not even going to deal with that proposal so that then led senator beth by to uh, write a letter to leadership saying she wanted public hearings mm-hmm. held in the legislature and that i think was a tremendously uh, important step for her to take mm-hmm um, and once again, legislature, legislative leadership has sort of poo-pooed her and said, ah, yeah, we don't need to have hearings. So it remains to be seen whether that will happen. Then, in a very dramatic statement at the, at the close of the uh, special session of the legislature, mm-hmm. you know, where they voted on the, um, to fix some small errors in the budget relating to mm-hmm. a hospital tax, mm-hmm. Representative uh, Godfrey Danbury gets up and says that he thinks what is happening with CTNN is a fraud, that what the legislature is doing to CTN is fraudulent, and that he is going to uh, introduce legislation in the upcoming uh, legislative session, which begins in in February, to either return CTN to the way it had been operating, you know, up through last year, or to kill it. To kill it. Kill it. His mm-hmm. position is very simple. CTN should not be reduced to a propaganda arm of the General Assembly. And I agree with him 100% uh, and completely support his efforts, Senator Bai's efforts, <clears throat> and um, uh, I'm the president of an organization called the Connecticut Council on Freedom of Information, and we will do everything we can to keep the spotlight shining on this. Because it's this is for the citizens of the state. They need to be able to see what their government is doing. And any time somebody tries to curtail that, that's bad for democracy. I have to interject that I am a member of said organization as yes. well. <laughs> um, so you think uh, they have a shot? I mean, we're talking, we don't quite know who in the legislature of, of, the, 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 of the leadership is opposed to this. We haven't name names yet but but and we don't have to or we can well no there but, are some le- some legislative leaders have gone on the record in mm-hmm. fact all of the the leaders representative uh, themis claritis and senator len fasano mm-hmm. um uh speaker martin looney and um uh, uh, uh Semerowitz, was, right um all have basically said ctn's gonna have to learn to make do with okay so the, so the top leadership then of both houses are yes are somehow push they're, they're, they're concerned in some fashion that is to, right to, to make this so so we okay so that requires more exploration yes uh, and more um, sort of figuring out what's really going on mm-hmm. okay uh, if you are just tuning in we are talking with First Amendment attorney Dan Clow uh, and this has been fascinating so do you think you think it can be worked out? I am an optimist by nature, so I remain hopeful. I mean, one thing that I uh, is to me is very positive is that the issue won't die. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's clear to me from following the, the the coverage in the press that legislative leadership wish this issue would just go away, but it won't. No, you know, you have rank and file members of the House like by and god for you who are standing up i know there will be others mm-hmm. and i expect that this will remain a serious issue in the legislative session what the outcome is at the end of the session your guess is as good as mine hmm. uh whether 
there's more money, there are changes in the structure so that editorial control goes back to the operator. I don't know, but I do believe that it will, um, it will be an issue that receives significant attention in the legislative session starting in February. Right. Yes, and and it may have something. To, well, yeah, it's, it's going to be fascinating to yep. see how to see how it evolves because it is such a. We were saying just before it's such a part of everybody's day, including reporters' days. As as um, news organizations reduce the number of people, the number of reporters who cover the state house, one of the ways that those reporters who are still there can cover the state house is through this. Well, and not just the state house, but executive branch agencies. Right, and and the judiciary, which will lead us to the next, uh, my next question, I don't know the answer to Mm -hmm. it yet, but uh, so it's a real, it's an issue in terms of coverage of the whole state, in a way. Okay, so my next question goes to the uh, state Supreme Court and its recent um, major hearing on the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting and the hearing that went before that court. Before we get into the background, was it televised? It was. Um, it was televised uh, by CTN, uh, remar- remarkably, but also the, uh, the Supreme Court opened the courtroom up to what's called pool coverage for the networks. Yes, so- and th- that's rare. It is, it is rare, not unheard of, but rare. Uh-huh. So the local you know, affiliates, NBC, right. CBS, ABC right. affiliates. They could um, have a pool. Could right. have a pool. And a pool just means you have a single camera mm-hmm. in there, mm-hmm. and the feed from that is shared with all of the uh, Right. There was the some issue because that was going on at the same time another major news story was going on. So the question was whether or not the, the, it could be covered. That's right. <clears throat> Right. And, and so it was. Yep. And that's a very good example, that particular case, of why it's necessary to have coverage of the judiciary. Absolutely. Absolutely. This is, this is going to be, uh, that has the potential to be an, uh, <clears throat> a groundbreaking case. Right. So let's talk about the case. So <laughs> we're actually, uh, we're almost into five years. It's hard to believe, but yeah. on December 14th, 2012 in Newtown, um, uh, Adam Lanzer walked in, uh, and by the time he was, it was over, he was dead. Um, he had killed his mother. Uh, he had killed, uh, 20 children and six other adults yep. in the school. Um, and, um, it, it was, you know, horrendous. Uh, and so what happened was there was a series of, you know, efforts at trying to figure out who to hold responsible beyond the Lanza clan. Right. Um, and earlier this month, a case was brought by one of those injured and the parents of a number of the kids who were killed, uh, and they were seeking to revive liability claims against Remington Arms, which is the manufacturer of the gun that Lanza used. And right. that case had been dismissed at the Superior Court level by the trial judge. Right? That's right. So... Um, what are your views about this? So tell us what went before the state Supreme Court. So the, the case, as you said, is an attempt by some uh, families mm-hmm. who mm-hmm. lost uh, children or other family members in, the, in mm-hmm. this horrible, horrible strategy mm-hmm. to hold the manufacturer of the AR-15, which rifle. is a military assault rifle. Right. Let's <clears throat> not, you know, let's not... Uh, uh, um, you know, play games here. It is mm-hmm. a military assault rifle, which is sold on the mass market for civilian use. 
Okay. Mm-hmm. And it was the gun, uh, one of the weapons that Adam uh, Lanza used. Mm-hmm. So the effort is to hold the manufacturer of that gun accountable for the extraordinary damage, harm, loss of life that it caused. Here's the problem, and this is what this case is about. There is a federal law that's mm-hmm. been on the books for a number of years that uh, that basically immunizes or insulates the manufacturers of firearms mm-hmm. from liability for deaths caused by the use of their firearm. Okay? Hmm. And uh, because in, look, in it, any situation, right? In, in <clears throat> almost any situation, mm-hmm. right? So I mean, guns are made to shoot bullets and kill people, but the law says that the manufacturer cannot be held responsible for the end user, you know, <clears throat> who may be far removed from the manufacturer for their use of it. But there's an exception. There's an exception in this federal law mm-hmm. for something called negligent entrustment. Negligent entrustment. Entrustment. Okay, so you'll have to explain that to our listeners. I will, right. So <laughs> think, of, think of, this is the way most people understand the negligent entrustment exception. Let's take a gun shop, uh, you know, a gun seller, somebody who owns a, a store that sells guns. Okay. And somebody comes into the gun store to buy a firearm. And the owner of that store knows that person. Mm-hmm. And let's say they mm-hmm. know they, that they know that person has um, some history that mm-hmm. su- suggests mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. Uh, they will use the firearm improperly. You know, mm-hmm. for an unlawful purpose. Mm-hmm. Yet the gun dealer or seller none, nevertheless entrusts this weapon to this person mm-hmm. who then goes on and shoots somebody. Mm-hmm. Okay. In that case, if the seller, the direct seller of the firearm to the purchaser knew or had reason to know that the purchaser was going to use it or was likely to use it for an unlawful purpose then you can say that the seller negligently entrusted this weapon to that to the buyer okay and the seller of the gun the gun shop owner might be held liable under those circumstances and the federal law would permit that liability what this lawsuit is mm-hmm. about is whether you can say that the manufacturer who had no relationship with the Nancy Lanza or Adam Lanza or the gun shop owner, right? Right. Right. Can, mm. can we say that the mm. Remington arms negligently entrusted the weapon to somebody, uh, with whom they had no contractual relationship? Well, wouldn't that, uh, raise the issue of <clears throat> who is their market? Who is Remington's market? Right. Who, who are they appealing to? Who are they, who are they, uh, using publicity to attract, to purchase these games. Does that, did that come into it? That was a major <clears throat> argument uh, by the plaintiff's attorney, gentleman named Josh, uh, Joshua Koskoff, who mm-hmm. argued the case for the plaintiffs. Yeah, we had his, his father on. There. Right. Yeah. Uh, wonderful, <clears throat> wonderful guy. And his, the argument is that, yes, you need to look at how Remington marketed this weapon. Who was their audience? You know, who were they uh-huh. trying to sell this to? <clears throat> How did they market the weapon to this person? And those facts, he argues, ought to be considered under this negligent entrustment exception. So that when Nancy Lanza, who was the person who purchased this gun, right, right 
went into a particular store, she was looking for a particular gun. I mean, right? I mean, she may have asked for, or I mean, sure. in other words, the publicity, the marketing had gotten to her, into her. She was looking for something. Right. Although, Josh, <clears throat> you know, the plaintiff's attorney was really arguing that Remington was marketing this gun to people like Adam, not like Nancy, but right. to people like Adam. Adam. Right. 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 Okay. Well, yeah, I, I could guess because he yeah. was into guns as well. Yeah. And right. he may have said, hey, mom, get this. Sure. It's quite possible. Exactly. Yep. Um, so now. What did you? What was your takeaway from the argument before the state's highest court? What? How were the judges engaged? Were they? How did? How did they react? Well, they were very engaged, and mm-hmm. I expected mm-hmm. them to be. I mean, this is a major case uh, with significant implications, regardless of which way it's resolved. Mm-hmm. So the judges had done their homework. There were many, many amicus briefs that were filed in this case. Oh, really? Yes. So if, <clears throat> if your listeners aren't sure what an amicus brief is it's it's latin for friend of the court right and when you have a case of this magnitude that's filed um in addition to the parties themselves filing <clears throat> written briefs with the courts <clears throat> other uh individuals and organizations that have an interest in this mm-hmm. are um can seek permission to file amicus briefs and there were many such briefs filed in this case in fact i filed one uh in support of the plaintiffs mm-hmm. um uh, that talked about the history and development of the AR-15. Hmm. And so the judges had the benefit of all of these amicus briefs, which <clears throat> were on both sides of the issues. You hmm. had briefs that supported limitation of liability against you know, f- manufacturers. You had briefs arguing in favor of expansion of liability. Hmm. And the judges hmm. were very engaged. One of the most important questions that I thought was asked uh, mm-hmm. during <clears throat> the argument was by um, uh, Justice Richard Palmer. Mm-hmm. And he said to the attorney arguing for the firearm manufacturer, don't you think that the law ought to evolve? Mm. And it was a very pointed question. What, was, mm. what he was saying to this gentleman was, yes, we understand what the traditional <clears throat> understanding of ne- negligent mm. entrustment claim is Mm -hmm. but the law can evolve over time Mm -hmm. and shouldn't this be a case where Mm -hmm. the law evolves and we expand the notion of negligent entrustment Mm -hmm. to cover um include what what remington Mm -hmm. uh, did in this case and now of course the answer from the uh from the defense lawyer was if you want the law to change your honor um look across the street and he literally, he, the defense attorney, turned his head and looked at the Capitol. Okay. <laughs> and he was saying, if you want the law to change, the place mm-hmm. to change it is with your legislators mm-hmm. or in Washington with Congress, mm-hmm. not through the courts. Mm-hmm. But that, and that's going to be the big issue in this case. Is the, can the courts <clears throat> change the law? or mm-hmm. uh, help the law evolve, mm-hmm. or is this uh, uh, an issue that can only be addressed by our elected officials in the state and Washington? So is Connecticut the first state to take this approach through the judiciary? Um, I mean, has, it been, has this argument been <clears throat> raised in any other state uh, that you know? It has. Uh, As I'm sitting here, I can't remember what states Mm -hmm. um, specifically. It's been addressed through uh, through you know judicial branches. Right. 
Um, but it's been raised, so there's been discussion. Oh, yes, yeah. it is. In fact, there have been any number of instances where the, somebody who was either killed you know, or injured by a firearms, you know, mm-hmm. if, it was, if they were killed, then their estate would bring the claim, to try to hold the <clears throat> manufacturer <throat> liable. Mm-hmm. And those efforts have, have all been unsuccessful. Mm. Um, so this, this case is, it's a difficult one yes. for the plaintiffs to win. <clears throat> it's a difficult one, but it's also, um, if any case should change the course of law, this might be the case. I mean, this, I, well, I, I agree with you. I mean, I this, this you. is not simply, you know, one, a one-on-one shooting or right. something like that. This is a very different historical case so that's right so i guess the the the, 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 the bench will have to think about this long and hard and, absolutely uh, um and you know for what it's mm-hmm. worth whatever happens in the state mm-hmm. supreme court this will not be the end of the case right so if they lose the idea is to take it up i would think <clears throat> uh if they being the plaintiffs if the plaintiffs lose um they would have the option of trying, 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 yes. trying to have right. the Supreme Court, U.S. Supreme Court here. Right. And conversely, right. if if the Sup- state Supreme Court decides the case in the plaintiff's favor, correct, the, I guarantee you that the manufacturers will, will be up, right. running to the U.S. Supreme Court, Court overnight. Yes. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Right. Uh, if uh, you are just uh, tuning in, listeners, we are talking with First Amendment attorney Dan Clow. So, speaking of the United States Supreme Court. Uh, there is a most intriguing First Amendment case this session that I think will probably have a lot of people glued to the arguments, uh, and it asks where to draw the line on free speech, and it has to do with, uh, all things, a wedding cake. Yes. And the case is called Masterpiece Cake Shop versus the Colorado Civil Rights Commission. So, Dan, tell us about this cake case. You know, um, let them eat cake. I'm sure Marie, Marie Antoinette had no idea what would happen um, when, when, when with oh, this cakes. Is a good, this is a good yeah. headline. Can I steal that headline? Let them eat cake. Sure. It's an old headline, but <laughs> we can old. apply it to this case. Absolutely. Right? Right. <laughs> Absolutely. So um, this case, the, the origins of this case are very simple. Mm-hmm. Uh, a gay couple mm-hmm. walked into a uh, wedding cake baker shop mm-hmm. in Colorado mm-hmm. Those were two men who were getting married, mm-hmm. and they wanted this uh, cake baker, who had a very good reputation, mm-hmm. to to uh, bake them a cake, bake them a cake mm-hmm. for their wedding. Mm-hmm. And he refused. He refused um, because he <clears throat> said that it was against his sincerely held religious beliefs to uh, bake a cake for a wedding of uh, uh, two men, because he did not believe in uh, gay marriage. So he refused to bake this cake. Now, Colorado has, as many states do, an anti-discrimination law. Mm -hmm. And it applies to what are called public accommodations. Basically, if you're a business that uh, is in the stream of commerce, if you're a luncheonette counter Mm -hmm. or a restaurant Mm -hmm. or a hair salon or a cake, you know, seller of cakes, then you are subject to anti-discrimination laws, and the law in Colorado forbids discrimination <clears throat> based on <clears throat> sexual orientation. So before you go on for that, go back to the lunch counters. Go the back lunch to the, counter. Let's go, go back go, to the 60s. Let's go back to the 60s. Or the, even the 50s. Or right. the 50s. And just remind our listeners 
about the lunch counter. Yeah, I, I think it's really important to, to do that. So, you know, uh, there was a time not too long ago in this country mm-hmm. where uh, blacks could not sit at the lunch counter in a white-owned restaurant in the South. All in, right. In fact, there were signs outside. That's right, on the windows that said blacks not welcome, mm-hmm. you know, whites only. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, one of the greatest, in my opinion, mm-hmm. Greatest mm-hmm. pieces of legislation ever enacted by Congress was uh, the Civil Rights Act mm-hmm. of 1964. Right. <clears throat> and one of the things that it did was forbid discrimination on the basis of race um, and uh, national origin, religion, um, by businesses. Right. And so it was a commercial. It actually started, in a sense, on this commercial level. That's right. You couldn't say, you can't have a cup of coffee in here. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Right. So now we're going to fast forward right. to 2017. Yep. Okay. And we're back in a commercial store. Yep. And this guy is saying no cake for you. No cake for you. And a state version of the <clears throat> Civil Rights Act, mm-hmm. all right, um, the Colorado version, mm-hmm. specifically, as I said, bans discrimination based on a sexual orientation. Mm-hmm. So th- these uh, two uh, gentlemen brought a lawsuit <clears throat> against the cake baker. Um, charging the baker with violating the the law against discriminating against people based on their sexual orientation. And here's the kicker. He said that the law as applied to him was unconstitutional. The baker. The baker. This is what the case is about. He says that forcing him Uh to do something that violated his sincerely held religious beliefs was a, a violation of um, his religious rights under the First Amendment. Mm-hmm. And he also said that his cake baking was a form of artistic expression, which is oh. protected under the First Amendment. Independent oh. of the religious issues, it's a form of artistic expression. And he was arguing, he's arguing that it is um, the state cannot force <clears throat> a person to cannot compel them to engage in speech or expressive conduct uh, because doing so violates the First Amendment. That's his argument. So that's what this this case is about. The case in the United States Supreme Court, which will be heard um, in the next several months, is about whether a person like a cake baker, like... uh, a hairstylist, mm-hmm. like a master chef, mm-hmm. and ultimately the cook behind the lunch counter. Okay, the cook behind the lunch can counter, yes. say, uh, "I have a First Amendment right not to be forced to serve people that I um, do not like." Okay gays, lesbians, member, any member of the LGBT community. That is the question. Can the government force a person to uh, engage in speech or expressive conduct on, in support of something like gay marriage that they do not believe in? That's the question in this Master Cake Baker case. And the implication on, for other areas are enormous. Could you speak to that? I'm beginning to think about what they might be as you're speaking. All right. So so the cake baker says, oh, this is a very narrow case. He said, simply saying, you can't force me 
to write on my cake, you know, on the top of my cake. Those two names of the, the men. The two names of these men. Mm-hmm. All right. So if they wanted to come in and just buy a cake off the rack, no problem. What you cannot do, Mr. Government, is force me to use my artistic capabilities as a cake decorator and write, you know, congratulations, Frankie and, and you know, Joey. Right. Okay. So he says this case won't have significant ramifications, but let's think mm. about it. Let's take a chef, mm-hmm. all right? A right. master chef who, who creates wonderful cuisine. Is that a form of artistic expression? If it is, then arguably it's protected just like the cake baker writing on the top mm. of his cake. <clears throat> or how about a hairstylist <clears throat> who, you know, uh, does amazing things? With women's hair and men's hair. Is that artistic expression? What if you were a portrait painter? A great example. Okay. What if you're a portrait painter? So I go, or you, somebody goes yep. to have their portrait take, uh, painted, mm-hmm. and it's advertised, and we, we paint portraits, and That's you right. pay a fee. But when a black person comes to the door, they say, no, we won't paint you. Or uh, a Guatemalan, or someone right. else, or a Jew, or a Jew, or a Muslim, or a Muslim wearing a hijab. Right. right. Somebody comes and they say, "No, no, we're not going to paint you." That's right. So doesn't that take it to another level? It does, and that is what those of us who are on the on the we'll call it the the couples side, the men's side here, are very worried about. Okay. That this is the classic slippery slope case. Uh-huh. If okay. if you if the Supreme Court decides in favor of mm. the cake baker. Mm-hmm. Doesn't that necessarily imply that the portrait artist mm-hmm. or the wedding photographer, right? Right. Also. Right, because the wedding photographer could say, I, I would love to do it, but I can't do it. Right. Right. So does mm-hmm. the wedding photographer have this uh, First Amendment immunity? And if the answer is that the wedding photographer has this immunity and the portrait artist has this immunity, then what about do we get to the point where the guy who owns the restaurant, the luncheonette says, you can't force me to craft my extra special hamburger recipe because that's a form of our, of expression on my part. And I don't, you can't compel me to do that. And what's more, and what's more, I'm going to put a sign in the window, right? Just the way it was in 1958. Right. So now the folks who support the cake baker would say, Dan, you know, this is chicken little. You're you're worrying about the sky falling. No, it's not. All we're talking about is Mm. recognizing some very, very narrow exceptions so that the government cannot force people, compel them to do acts that violate their sincerely held religious beliefs or force them to engage in speech uh, on a message they disagree with. I don't. Agree and your position. My, just, my, just for the just, record, my position is: if you're in commerce, if you're in commerce, then you cannot discriminate. That's all. That's right. You, right. If, you if you're in, right, and so in the end, it's the icing. Yes. <laughs> the icing on the cake. It is. It that's is. Right. I mean, that's the final word. It's the icing on the cake. That, that, yes, you are in commerce. You cannot discriminate. Or else we might as well throw out all those civil rights laws. And let me say, I have some very good support for my opinion. Floyd mm-hmm. Abrams, who is arguably the preeminent yes, First we, Amendment attorney yes. in the United States. Yes. Okay? Mm-hmm. He, there was an article uh, about the position he took in this case because mm-hmm. he submitted an amicus brief mm-hmm. and he struggled with this case. And and I want to say I struggle with it too. It's not an easy 
mm-hmm. case to mm-hmm. decide. Mm-hmm. I understand <clears throat> the <throat> argument of the cake vapor and similarly situated people, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, his conclusion was if we recognize a First Amendment a defense for the cake baker, mm-hmm. then you have to recognize the same First Amendment defense for the guy who runs the luncheonette. And we've been there. We've done that. Right. It was wrong. <clears throat> the country has <clears throat> advanced far beyond that. And we simply cannot um, use the First Amendment to immunize um, discriminatory conduct based on race, religion, mm-hmm. sexual orientation, whatever. Right. Well, thank you. It's going to be a fascinating case to watch, won't it? Yes. Okay. So um, uh, if you're just tuning in, we are talking with First Amendment attorney Dan Clow. We have just a little bit more time, Um, but um, I want to just get a brief um, uh, update on the emoluments uh, clause issue. Some months ago when you were here, we talked about that with regard to uh, Mr. Trump. Uh, and uh, there were a couple of lawsuits as mm-hmm. to whether or not, you know, he uh, could um, accept emoluments or gifts from a, a foreign power. Uh, where are we at? Do we, do we have any sense of where those cases are going? Or they've, well, they've sort of passed beyond, we haven't seen much of them. Of a, of a, uh, they're in the courts. Okay. And, mm-hmm. um, and there's been no decision on mm-hmm. in, in any of the cases by the judges, so we're mm-hmm. waiting to sort of see what happens. <clears throat> there have been some developments on mm-hmm. the political side. Mm-hmm. So um, there are articles of impeachment have been introduced That's right. yes. in the House of Representatives in mm-hmm. Congress uh, by a number of, uh, I think, five or so Democratic congressmen jointly introduced these articles <clears throat> of impeachment. And our, uh, mm-hmm. one of the grounds... You know, one of the articles of impeachment is that the president is violating mm-hmm. the emoluments clause. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also uh, just read this morning that there are these huge ads going up on billboards in New York Times, uh, excuse me, in uh, Times mm-hmm. Square, Where? New York, um, you know, the electronic billboard. Yes, so every yeah. 10 minutes, there's a big ad impeach president. <clears throat> Impeach uh, oh, President really? Trump. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. And they'll run for, I think, 10 days or something over the next <laughs> couple of weeks. So somebody's spending money. But somebody is spending money. Right. And But the Emoluments Clause is this gift issue. Look, I'll just, this is just my view, that this, this president mm-hmm. um, uses his office for personal gain. Yes. Right? right? I mean, if you look, he, he owns hotels in New York, uh, excuse me, in Washington, and people uh, who want to influence him as president right. go to and stayed at that hotel and book events at that hotel. You right. know, this is the Trump Hotel in, yeah, in, Washington. in Washington. He owns businesses that are profiting because of his mm-hmm. new status as the president of the United States. So the argument is that this, uh, this is effectively a violation of this anti-gift giving clause that's in the Mm. constitution. Um, And uh, as as you said, there are cases in the courts. We have to wait and see what happens. There are articles of impeachment. I think that's uh, politics at this moment. There's no realistic chance of the president being impeached now, as long as the Republicans control the house of representatives. Right. Um, And even if control of the House were to switch, mm-hmm. I, you know, impeachment is always the most draconian of remedies. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the Emoluments Clause, is, it's really important. The, and the thing that everybody needs to remember is that, is that this president uses his office <clears throat> to profit personally 
through mm. his businesses. Okay, Dan, we have that, that. We have two minutes left, yep. and in the brief two minutes, uh, I did mention Justice uh, Chase Rogers, uh, the Chief Justice of the State Supreme Court. She recently announced her retirement. Yes, she's relatively young; she's about sixty. Uh, people were a little surprised. Um, could you just give me a sense of her history, or just her her place in the court, and what will be the impact on the court, in your view? I think mm. the most important mm. thing will people remember about the, the Chief mm. Justice is what she did to ensure the openness mm-hmm. and transparency of the court system. When she became uh, Chief Justice, uh, which was, I think, about 11, 11 mm. years yeah, ago, yeah, almost right. 11 years ago, the court system mm. was suffering from a, a bit of a scandal. Mm-hmm. Um, over the soup, uh, ceiling of cases for yes. very important people. Yes, they I were getting that. special treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, so when she became Chief Justice, one of her first goals was to improve the transparency of the courts, mm-hmm. make them more open and accountable to the public. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, she was, I think, very successful um, in doing that. And, you know, much as, as the country after Richard Nixon, you know, needed somebody to come in, whether it was Ford and then ultimately Carter to sort of bring, restore confidence Mm -hmm. in government. I think she did that. Um, In fact, I know she did that uh, in the judicial branch. And that is something that she Mm -hmm. will be remembered for positively. And who appoints the next chief justice? That is uh, the governor. Governor Malloy will do that um, Mm -hmm. in all likelihood. Uh, Mm -hmm. He will still be in office when she officially retires in February. Mm -hmm. And under our state constitution, the governor will make the choice. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, we will stay tuned about that and the choice. It looks like our time is up. It goes fast when the topics are so very interesting. And we want to thank Dan Clough for joining us once again in our New Haven studio to give us his insight into what is always a changing and fascinating world of the First Amendment. (laughs) Uh, Thank you, Dan, for being with us today. Thank you, Marsha. And uh, to our listeners, you can go to the newhavenindependent.org website to get a podcast of this broadcast and to listen to the wide variety of shows the station is producing each day. Thank you. Thank you.